Welcome to the Drop Time Report. Turn up the volume and listen to amazing stories about big bucks and the hunters who harvested them. Here is your host, outdoor writer, Tracy Breen. On this episode of the Drop Time Report, we're going to have on outdoor writer Steve Bartella. Steve is probably best known as one of the faces of deer and deer hunting. He does a lot of writing for Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. He also hosts uh, several of their online shows, uh, as well as being uh, a Facebook regular, has a page where he's often giving whitetail hunting tips and land management tips. And today we're going to talk about uh, a buck that he recently killed in Illinois uh, that was a big eight point. And he had a little bit of a history with this buck. He was seven and a half years old when he killed him. The buck escaped uh, several other hunters. He had been shot and hit twice and survived and went nocturnal for many years. Uh, And so Steve is going to talk about that buck as well as weave some of his land management tips uh, into the story of uh, telling us how he killed that big eight and how he managed land and how managing the land helped him kill that big eight. So it should be a, a really good uh, episode. But first, I'd like to thank my sponsors, my title sponsor, <clears throat> excuse me, Redneck Blinds, Fourth Arrow Camera Arms, Windscent Morale Targets. Check out their high roller target, uh, Huntworth Clothing. Huntworthgear.com is their website if you're looking for. Uh, clothing that won't break the bank, check out huntworthgear.com. Pine Ridge Archery, makers of the nitrovane Lucky Buck Mineral. Now's a great time to get Lucky Buck Mineral on the ground now that hunting season is over and, and deer are trying to replenish themselves. Grim Reaper Broadheads, Schaefer Performance Archery, maker of the XV Arrow Rest. Illinois Connection Outfitters, Outdoorsmen's, makers of high end backpacks and tripods and accessories. Uh, for glassing, they also stock Swarovski glass, Zeiss, many of today's top optics makers, and wilderness athlete. Uh, the New Year's here. If you're trying to shed a few pounds, check out wildernessathlete.com. Uh, my favorite product is their Hydrate and Recover drink. doesn't have uh, much sugar in it and can help you, you know, curve those food cravings and help you lose some weight wildernessathlete.com. Enter drop 10 at checkout and get 10% off your order. Now let's go ahead and get Steve on the phone. Welcome to the Drop 10 Report, Steve. How are you today? I'm okay. How about yourself, Trace? Oh, pretty good. You should sound a little more excited than that, though. (laughs) All right. I'll try, my man. I'm excited. I'm just not a morning person, to be brutally honest with you. Ah, there you go. You need a Starbucks coffee, I guess. Are they sponsoring the podcast? <laughs> yeah, I wish. I definitely do. If not, nah, I don't care for sponsors. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, I wish they were sponsoring the podcast. That's for sure. Uh, that's funny. Well, hey, uh, uh, welcome home from the ATA show. Hopefully you made it through all the ice storms and everything. Uh, it, it was nasty for some people, I guess. Yeah, I actually was able to get out of there on on Friday morning, so I missed it all, and was was home comfortably at 
comfortably in my own home while all you other guys were fighting the storms. There you so, go. Yeah. Everybody I know made it home safe, so we're good there. We're good. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about some land management things, but uh, I want to start with a buck you killed uh, that we briefly talked about here a few minutes ago. And, and you know, everybody gives their dear cutesy names. Uh, you called this one the big eight that needed to die. Uh, yeah. So obvi- obviously you, uh, you know, you're very eloquent writer. I, I don't mean to show off, Tracy, but as a professional wordsmith, I come up with the worst names for everything. <laughs> so... I've written more than one or two articles my entire career that the editors didn't change the titles on. Isn't that interesting? That is how it often goes. You know, you'll come up with a clever title. I, I you know, I'm in the same boat. You come up with a clever title, and you think it's real, you know, cutesy or whatever, and and the editor changes it to something that's just asinine you know and you're like why didn't you use mine? So yeah, th- th- I I've always felt like that's just an editor's way of kind of leaving their fingerprint on an article. Well, in my case, unlike yours, it's, I'm coming up with asinine titles. <laughs> Always the humble one, aren't you? Always the humble one. <laughs> well, it's the truth. Embrace reality, my friend. And that is go. reality. I can't name things to save my soul. But anyhow, yes. Um, <clears throat> the buck in question was actually a seven-and-a-half-year-old that that we've been hunting out there for, well, since he was a three-and-a-half-year-old, to be brutally honest with you. Um, One hunter was able to actually get an arrow into him, Um, and then another hunter actually got a slug into him. Wow. uh, Yeah, unfortunately, neither of them were killing shots, and um, both of them he recovered from, no worse for wear. Now, was he shot at at three-and-a-half? And survived all those years, or was it periodically he was shot at? He was shot twice as a four and a half year old, and that apparently made him really smart because we didn't see him again until, as far as from a stand. Um, I've been getting uh, reconics pictures of him this entire time, but didn't see him again until the day I actually shot him. Uh, which would have been a couple of years later. See, that's the that's the thing about. I'll tell you what, and I know I know you realize this, but it is a person is so infinitely more successful when hunting stupid deer than you ever are than I ever am hunting smart ones. Yeah, there you go. Words of wisdom to live by, right? I mean, you get these things. These things get shot at a couple times and get injured or missed or just have those close encounters and they get real smart because frankly their life depends on it yeah Um, and by smart it's really more the better term would be paranoid they get real paranoid and for good reason i mean imagine walking around out there and minding your own business and next thing you know you got a really 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 sharp pain real high in your back now i mean those, those things tend to tend to leave a mark. Yeah, both mentally and physically, right? Exactly, exactly. Now, did he go, when that happened, did he strictly turn nocturnal for the most part? That's about it. I mean, the the first 
I'll be honest with you, the bow shot didn't seem to, I don't think he honestly ever had a clue what happened to him. Um, he was shot a little bit too, well, considerably too high, too far back, and ended up getting a straight pass through, but somehow obviously missed anything vital. Um, <clears throat> uh, that really, that slowed him down for about a week. But it was that firearm season, geez, a good, honest 90 minutes before dark when he was shot again. And hey, that is the one that really seemed to, to transform him. But I'll tell you what, there's no, there's no hard and fast rules and all this stuff. There was a really, really good one that the neighbors had shot uh, that the neighbors had shot through the shoulder as a three-and-a-half-year-old. And then they went ahead and shot him again as a four-and-a-half-year-old with a gun, and then they ended up shooting him again as a five-and-a-half-year-old. Did they finally kill him? Yeah, finally. Third um, time was the charm, huh? Yeah, uh, but he never, outside of when he was shot the first time, a big chunk of the arrow was left in and I'll tell you what, you want a you want a really good example of how hard the rut is on these white tails. This buck was shot mid October <clears throat> through the too far forward through the front shoulder, and there is literally I know I they ended up dig, digging it out when they got ended up getting it finally, but there was a third of an arrow in its chest cavity. It was wow. like something put a zip tie right behind his front shoulders and then put an air compressor in his nose and expanded that front third as much with infection as anything I have ever seen in my life. The first time I got pictures of this deer after he was shot, I was like, oh, man, he ain't making it. And that's, that's way too bad because he is a 160-inch, three-and-a-half-year-old buck. But man, he, there's no way he's gonna make it. It all—he was infected all the way down to his hooves for crying out loud. Wow! And that entire front third just looked hideous. Well, he survived. That next year, he added thirty inches of antlers. They're a tough animal, aren't they? Well, to me, what that goes ahead and screams is how hard the rut is on these bucks. You know, they're losing 25 to 30% body weight during the rut. Instead, he was better off with with a third of an arrow through his shoulders because he was laid up that entire rut. He didn't actually really start recuperating until around January. Uh, well, it was December when I was like, Oh wow, this deer's gonna actually survive. And by January he looked normal again. So just by surviving the rut by laying up rather than actually rutting, um, even fighting that infection with that long term injury, he ended up putting on more inches that next year than he had the previous year. And then when he did rut that fall, that next year when they did kill him. He actually lost ten inches. Wow! So if if there's one thing that has really been reality is really drilled into my head that we don't talk 
anywhere near enough about when it comes to deer management is how intensely, intensely hard on these whitetails, these mature bucks, the rut is. It is so, you hear all about these tight sex ratios, and that is awesome for hunting. But yet it is literally horrible for deer management. You put such level of stress on these on those bucks that it is it isn't even funny. We had one year, and then I'll circle back to uh, the big eight that needs to die. <laughs> sure. One year we had a combination of blue tongue and EHD come through one of the properties that I was managing for a client to the point where it wiped out an honest seventy percent of the deer population, but it ended up taking a disproportionately large amount of does compared to bucks. And we actually did have more bucks running around on that property than we had does after everything was said and done. Tremendously exciting hunts for the number of deer that were left. I mean, geez, I'm sitting on one, and this is a large, ridiculously large property. It's not reality, it's utopia. Okay. Um, But I'm sitting on one end, and a mile and a half away, my buddy on the same property saw three of the same four bucks I did that day. Wow. And I saw saw every one but one of them multiple times just because they end up running themselves ragged trying to find those, those few pathetic, those pathetically few does that are left that it makes for awesome hunts, but I have never had the level of rut mortality that I did that year where so many, I mean, not exaggerating, 25% of the, of the surviving three and a half and older bucks ended up dying just from rutting so darn hard. Social stress for as much as we know about management and habitat improvement these days social stress we just don't talk about it and i have no idea why because it is a huge deal in all of this well and what can i know we're kind of getting off what we're going to talk about but since we're talking about it we might as well finish it what what can a guy do uh you know to reduce that stress i mean besides i guess you could just like you're talking about kill piles and piles of does but um that's that's a tough one to solve right actually is actually what you'd think but it's the reverse of that um when you kill piles and piles and piles of does you're tightening up that buck to doe ratio more and more and more and the the tighter the ratio is the more stress it is on those bucks i know we've been told that uh that having (laughs) this is so what you're saying is have more does so the bucks don't have to work as hard to find them and then go ahead and divide up the property rather than rather than have that one centrally located food source that makes it great for hunting because you know where they're going. They're going to that one food source. Now, if you don't hunt it right, most of that's going to be after dark. But still, it makes it pretty darn easy to figure out, hmm, I've got one per primary food source on this property. Where are the, where are the bucks going to be headed a half hour before dark. 
Well, probably to that one primary food source. So there's big advantages from a hunting standpoint that way. But if rather than offer that one food source, that one bedding area, that one watering hole, instead, offer two, offer three. I mean, the, the balance is going to be dictated to great degree to how many acres you have, <clears throat> what the habitat type is, all that type of stuff. But by by taking sections of that ground and offering everything a mature buck could want and need in that section, rather than on this one property, if you follow, what you're doing is you're dividing up the pressure a little bit. Sure. That helps. From, from a management standpoint, when it comes to actually harvesting animals, I'll be brutally honest with you, Tracy, it doesn't apply to at least 90% of hunters out there. It, when you have, and trust me, I have been there many times myself and managed properties, used to, man, I've retired from the management end of things, but used to manage properties for a lot of people with 80s, 40s, that type of stuff. Unless you're talking hundreds of acres, the idea of managing the deer population is way more fantasy than reality because you're at the mercy of your neighbors. You truly yeah. are. So it really boils down to just trying to attract deer more than anything at that point is is what I think. You know, if if you have a food plot and your neighbor doesn't, hopefully you'll get a crack at a buck instead of him kind of thing. If you're, and I'll take it a step further. One of the biggest things that um, the consultants that are making money off this stuff these days actually do for people is just teach them how to hunt that 40 in a low impact manner rather than hunting it in a high impact manner, which the overwhelming majority of the world does. Um, the dirty little secret is on these, uh, I, I will probably, hopefully, um, die managing the two properties I am right now. Um, and by that, I mean that I don't think I'm ever going to be let go out of these two positions, and I'm never letting them go myself because they are... Disney lad. Um, I mean, I wouldn't even <laughs> dare to have a dream like this. No. Uh, so, I know when I got it good, and I hang on tight when I do, and I got it good. But um, <clears throat> as it applies to so many of these real-world properties and how they're managed... 90% of it is just exactly doing something like you suggested, and that's put in, put in some type of attractant that is not offered in the area. Now, um, even in Iowa, you can put in food plots that really, really are effective at drawing deer, despite the fact that that deer can get alfalfa, corn, soybeans, clover, all that stuff within 300 yards of where your food plot is. Maybe that's a slight exaggeration for emphasis. Yeah, but what you're saying is you that I always call that the candy bar approach, right? You're offering him something that he doesn't get anywhere else, you know. So if, so if he's surrounded by vegetables and broccoli and you hand him a Snickers bar, well, he's going to come to the Snickers bar. You're darn right, especially when that Snickers bar is in a location where he feels so comfortable and safe and secure. And then what you do is you make it so that, man, it's just not the Snickers bar he's coming for. 
you make it so that it's a Snickers bar and a date with a really with a really pretty girl at the same time. And the way you do that, and I mean it's not quite that simple, but but I'm just trying to work with your analogy here. The way you do that yeah. is okay, let's say you own that forty acres of actual deer woods in Iowa. And you're surrounded by all this egg. You know what? You're the one who's got it good. You got it real good because you got the deer cover. So, hmm, maybe 50 yards off of that fence line on one of the major, major trails they're dumping into that neighbor's cornfield, maybe I'll go ahead and put a little, oh, let's say quarter acre opening there in the woods. Put that in a put that in a clover or a cereal rye or something like that. You know, something that the deer will like. And if you really want to add the Snickers bar, go ahead and throw a couple dungston chestnuts, a few persimmon trees, a, a handful of apple trees in there as well. And now let's go ahead and let's make it so that there is a ridiculous glut of licking branches around that opening and in that opening. So now, even when the food isn't there, what you've just done is you've created the most natural staging area there is before they jump that fence over into the wide open field. You do that, and you end. And obviously, you get real selective on where you do that. You pick a spot where I can get here, I can hunt it, and I can get out without deer knowing I'm here, because that is one of the hugest, hugest keys for that small property owner or manager is that you can't let those deer inside that 40, that 20, that 80, that 120 know you're hunting them because yeah. you know what? there's a whole bunch of habitat around you that they can go to. You want them instead to treat your land like those pockets of unhunted ground within public land. And that's really where I figured this out. I, I hunt public land every year, just like you do. And hmm, where do you where do you actually see mature deer on public land where we don't go? Nothing more, nothing. Yeah, and they have a knack for finding those places, right? I mean, they figure them out. However small that little spot is, they figure that out. You darn right, because their life literally depends on it. Now, um, and that's that's been my entire. I, I'll tell you my entire secret to hunting public ground. That is, find those locations where no one else goes. Don't hunt it, hunt it until the conditions are right. Get in there before absolutely anyone else is pulling into the parking lot and sit there until you kill or dark, whichever comes first. Yeah, That's all it is for me. Okay? Why can't we apply that exact same thing to that 40? And all those, all those neighbors who've been literally driving you nuts. I mean, man, if they would just fill in the blank with whatever, our hunting would be so much better. Well, you can't control what they do on their side of the fence, and they have every right in the world to do anything legal they want over there. You have no more right to tell them what they can do on their side than they have to tell you what you can do on yours. So you Absolutely. And you make that 40 that pocket of the public ground that doesn't get pressure. And what happens? It attracts deer like a magnet. And the whole key to be able to pull that off while hunting it 
just get your tail out there and manufacture high-odds, low-impact fans. If the deer do not see you, if they do not smell you, if they do not hear you, you weren't there, as far as they're concerned. And while everybody else's hunting in the area keeps getting worse and worse and worse with every hunting day spent on their ground, your hunting keeps getting better because you keep attracting whitetails because they are attracted to those low-pressure areas. Why? Because their life depends on it. And frankly, really think about what we just said right there. That's how simple so much of this stuff is. We try to make it so darn complicated. But really, everything they, almost everything they do is just a simple matter of stacking the odds for their survival and perpetuating opportunities. Nothing more, nothing less. So let's let's circle back, uh, and then we are going to talk about you know what what hunters should be doing in January, February, March. But let's circle back and talk about you know the big eight that needed to die. Um, you know, tell the story of that buck. So at, at four and a half, he was hit twice. He survived. You killed him at seven and a half. Um, you know, tell the tale of that deer. Well, I'm. I'm. This would make for a far more thrilling story if I actually did this specifically for him. I can't pretend I did. I did this because it needed to happen. What I did is I'm starting to get to the, uh, I'm starting to get to the end on this ground as far as setups go, manufacturing the types of low-impact setups I want to need. Uh, But one of the things I learned about hunting, hunting out of enclosed box blinds, specifically, uh, specifically, I use rednecks. Um, is that you can get away with putting those rednecks right out in the mid, and this applies to any enclosed box blind. Um, you can get away with putting them right out in the middle of a wide open food source. Eventually, the white tail is accepted. Um, <clears throat> that's harmless. Unless, unless your neighbors or a bunch of people in the neighborhood are doing the exact same thing. If a bunch of people in the neighborhood, well, let me, let me back up just a little bit here. Deer, in my opinion, in one key way, are absolutely no different than our dogs at home. We can train them to accept darn near anything. And we can train them to fear darn near anything. Um <clears throat> So much of what we're seeing out in the woods these days isn't natural movement, what I would consider natural. It is what we have trained the deer to do to survive. Okay, so if your neighborhood has elevated box blinds up all over out in fields, don't put your elevated box blind out in a field. Because the neighbors have been training them for years that those are danger. Stay away from them. In an area where your neighbors aren't doing that, you can certainly get away with that. Putting that elevated box blind right out in the middle of that wide open, that wide open food source. But now you just have to be very, very careful in how hunting it in the morning is almost, almost a non-go in every scenario. Because, hmm, what are the deer doing at night? They're feeding. Oh, well, my 
box blinds is out in the middle of a food source, so how am I going to get there without kicking all those deer out? Um, evening hunts getting in is no problem, but getting out can be a real pain. Um, it makes it yeah. like you either have to spend an awful lot of time sitting up in that, that blind waiting for the deer to naturally clear off, having somebody pick you up in a vehicle, which isn't, isn't ideal, but it's a heck of a lot better than them watching you walk, climb down out of there, or worst case, them watching you climb down out of there. And they watch you climb down out of there a time or two, and guess what? They are not going to be around that blind anymore. So I needed to do some, <clears throat> I needed to do some shifting based on what I'd learned. And I knew that this one spot I really should put in a, uh, should put in a food plot in it because it's a natural staging area that dumps into a main field. Um, <clears throat> I went ahead and be brutally honest with you, I happened to have a bulldozer out there to do some road work. And I'm like, all right, you know, this is this would be a really nice tool for creating nice, nice flat areas to set up, elevated to set up my rednecks on. So I ran around after I got done with the road work and and uh, um, dozed out some flat spots, actually tucking the... I treated the rednecks just like I treat a tree stand. And I'm using them in areas that tree stands won't work. Or I want shelter from from the wind. Because, geez, when it's blowing 20 miles an hour, good luck finding a tree stand that isn't swaying. Um, the rednecks don't. So that helps me in hunting those types of conditions as well. I went into this one spot, <clears throat> bulldozed a little, a little flat, just inside the woods. The trees weren't big enough for stands, but they were plenty big to go ahead and break the outline of the redneck. Now I could sneak in the backside, <clears throat> um, <clears throat> having the, both the redneck and the woods cover me climbing up and down. I, right next to a great big red cedar, you know, for beautiful cover. Um, I can get in, I can get out, and it doesn't stick out like that sore thumb just because it's tucked in. And then the next thing I did is bought bought an acre and a half of corn back from the farmer. And I left that acre and a half out in front of that food plot. And then next, in this area, you have to check to make sure this is legal in the areas that you're doing this. But where it is legal, honestly, Tracy, it's almost not even fair. What I did is cut a couple trails through the corn. I could sure. trail entering the corn exactly 30 yards from the redneck. Hmm. The majority of the deer, well, and let's, let's even step back one more step. There's been a lot, last 10, 10, 15 years or so, there's been a lot of talk in the habitat circles of creating lines of movement, you know, just paths for deer to follow. Um, a lot of people are talking about how what you need to do is you need to go ahead and plant a strip of food. But don't just plant clover. Go ahead, plant clover, brassicas, and soybeans or, and or corn in that same strip. Now, you go ahead and you plant this strip across this great big old CRP field, let's say, um, that in a way that doesn't, it can't be in certain programs for a person to be able to do this. We're assuming everything's legal, of course. But just 
just go ahead and put that strip going across that that grass field, and oh, the deer are going to follow it like crazy. Go ahead and make a racetrack in your woods with something. <laughs> and geez, the deer are going to jump on there, go round and round and round in circles. And I got, I got client after client after client after client from people who had tried those things. You know, many of them actually had the had various consultants out to set it up for them. And it's like, geez, this ain't working for me. Well, no, it, it that I per, I personally have never had any level of success with that to speak of. Where I'm able to create very effective <clears throat> lines of movement is when I'm using a combination of green and grain. Every one of the listeners out there realize. I'm sure that there's certain times of the year that that corn is a tremendous draw. And there's certain times of year when it really isn't that great. Okay? There's certain times of year when, when clover and or cereal rye is a tremendous, or brassica, any type of greens, tremendous draw. And there's certain times where it isn't. Okay? Um, oftentimes, that... Either the soybeans or the <clears throat> are going to be a tremendous draw when that green isn't, and vice versa. But here's the catch: when they're eating grain, they almost always want some greens, and when they're eating greens, they almost want almost always want some greens. No, that green may not be the powerful draw. It may be the greens today, but after eating some greens, they're going to go get a couple mouthfuls of grain, and vice versa. When I can lay green and grains out in a path, you know, it's completely separate. That is when I have tremendously high odds of those deer going from the greens to the greens following that line of movement, for lack of a better term. And that's exactly what I was setting up here. I want you to come in. If you're on this side of me, you're going to come in, you're going to hit these greens. And, oh, by the way... There happens to be a scrape tree planted exactly 20 yards out in front of this ground blind, or I'm sorry, in front of this elevated redneck, um, and a ridiculous glut of licking branches to create that social hub. So now, even if you don't want this green, you need to advertise. And you're going to advertise here, because that's where the overwhelming majority of advertisement is occurring, and that creates a little bit of a feeding frenzy. Um, and then, also at the same time, you got the greens and grains pulling them back and forth. Now, you mow a trail through that standing corn for the deer to follow, and oh, Sorky, as I said, it, it almost gets to be, honestly, it almost gets to be unfair. Um, so that's exactly what I did. I mowed a, I mowed a trail system through the corn that dumped, I made a Y where the, the single portion, the base of the Y is entering this food plot at 30 yards and then it gets out in the corn and it splits. This has been the first no. time this year that that blind had been hunted. I had, okay. I had some prep work to do. I didn't have I didn't have the windows. I mean, I had the chair up in there. I had all the window stuff in. This is before I didn't have any of the uh, um, 
uh, Redneck came out with some really cool new window covers that I'm going to be using from here on out, but I wasn't aware of them yet. So there I am, up and I got up into the stand, the blind, extra early. I mean, it's like, geez, five hours before dark at this point. <clears throat> um, because I needed to tape up these windows. Get everything set, everything ready for when prime time came. I wasn't up there for more than five minutes, and dang, I just spooked a buck. Oh, wait a minute. He isn't spooked. Oh, geez, he's on Nestor's Doe Trail. I know darn well he's on Nestor's. I got. I better get ready here because he ain't gonna be the last one that I saw that I see. Um, sure enough, over the course of the next couple hours, I saw I don't know about a dozen different bucks all doing the exact same thing, all with their nose to the ground following this trail. So I know this is gonna be a good set. This is gonna be a real good set. Will the big eight that needs to die show up? I can't promise he will, but I am back there specifically hunting him. Um, okay, so that's my question was, were you expecting to see the big eight? Up until this point, he was nocturnal or whatever, but you were there on a mission to kill him. Well, actually, this year he had, I, I've seen, well, this is a great teaching point here. Thanks for mentioning that. Um, up until about two weeks before that, he'd been nocturnal. Now, I just went ahead and swapped the chips the day before. That that morning, I'm feverishly going through chips, and, oh, wait a minute, the big eight that needs to die, he ain't being very nocturnal right now. He's spending quite a bit of time in this general area here during daylight. Hmm. Which of these various stand options do I have that works with today's wind that I believe gives me the best opportunity of meeting him? This was it, this stand right here. So I had, and that's something, the longer and longer I ride these rodeo circuits, the more, the more I need a reason. If I'm going to go in to hunt, <clears throat> to hunt a mature buck, give me a reason to believe that I have a legitimate chance of killing him there today. If not, I'm just going to hunt a low impact stand that I have a chance, a random chance of something. But it's going to be a very low-impact location. I don't know. This is not what I would consider high-impact by any stretch, but it is higher impact than it is on the outside of the property. So I needed a reason to go in there to hunt this. That was, frankly, the whole reason that the place hadn't, that the stand location hadn't been hunted all year. I hadn't had a reason. Now I do. The big eight that needs to die is now all of a sudden moving around during daylight again. He's in this area. This is a safe wind location. And of my safe wind locations in that area, I believe this offers me a combination of having his picture there. Now, I did have his picture in the area at other locations as well, but a combination of having his picture there, it, the rut starting to wind down, knowing darn well that those mowed paths through that corn were attracting does like crazy, which in turn, during the rut, is attracting bucks like crazy. Now, everything just, by the time everything was added up, that was the location I believed gave me the best odds of being able to arrow him from, frankly. And 
Now, what um, what day of the year was it? It was the day. It was the Friday, uh, the Thursday before Illinois' first shotgun season. The day before. Okay. So you're still catching. Well, I mean, these days with the way the weather is all messed up, actually, I'm not sure the rut ever ends. But historically speaking, you're still catching the tail end of the rut there. Okay. Um, and sure enough, I mean, it played out perfect. The doe had come through before I got up there, and every buck in the area was picking up her track. Now, and she happened to walk 20 yards right out in front of me, apparently, based on what the bucks were telling me, the way they were following her track. She happened to cut through that green food plot at 20 yards from my stand. So I was, I was pretty optimistic. Not necessarily that I was going to see and kill him, but pretty optimistic that this was going to be a good hunt after I figured out what had happened right before I crawled up in there. Sure. I'll fast forward to about, oh, I don't know, 90 minutes before, 90 minutes before dark. And I see him walking the, the western portion, western leg of that Y. And he steps out into the intersection. I thought about shooting him right then and there. It would have been a 50-yard shot. I thought about it, but why? You know darn well he is going to hit that trail, and he's going to come right out at 30 yards. He'll have a gift-wrapped shot. Don't. Don't push it. This is, this is a done deal. Well, you ever hear of Murphy's Law, my friend? <laughs> <laughs> because when it applies to hunting, Every time I think something is a flat-out done deal, I'll tell you what, I'm served a great big great big piece of humble pie. He walked right through where she did, and he never caught her. So now he's walking away. Um, I, uh, I've been doing a lot the last couple of years on, on a Facebook page, Steve Bartella Outdoors. And one of the followers had asked for my address. I honestly figured they probably owned some type of company and they were trying to send me something to give them some exposure, that type of stuff. Well, they sent, turns out they do, but they weren't asking for exposure. He sent me a, and uh, <clears throat> turns out he's one of the co-owners of 3rd Regiment Game Calls and he sent me a personally engraved call. Didn't ask for any exposure, didn't ask for any of that stuff. But I brought it with, figured, man, if this isn't good karma, I don't know what is. So I went ahead as it started to walk away. It's about 60 yards. I grabbed that front call and gave him one good solid buck grunt. He stops, looks over one shoulder, back towards me, actually looking right at the redneck because that's where the town came from. And that's why I only gave him one. All right, I don't think this is going to work, but as soon as he starts walking away, I'm going to hit him with a doe call. An Esther's doe call, that is the cool thing about this uh, This call. It's just a slide. You know, mm-hmm. That grunt slid it down to the Esther's doe. He starts walking away. Hit him with an Esther's doe call. He stops and actually turns. And I think, well, okay, all right, now, now we're in the game. And then he turns around and starts walking through the woods. Because um, that is the nasty part about truly mature bucks, is they ain't stupid. 
When they hear a call, they expect to see a deer. When they don't see a deer, they tend to stand there and look and look and look. And when they don't see that deer, well, they keep going. Either that or they come in, you hit the call, they come running in like an idiot. One of the two scenarios generally is what plays out for me most consistently. So now he's cutting through the corn. He's going to go into the woods on the opposite side of the food plot, now about 100 yards away. All right. When he hits the woods, what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab the, the rattling antlers and just click them together real quick, but not for very long because, he's again, he's only, you know, I don't know, 80, 90, 100 yards away, and he's got a plain sight shot to me. So that's exactly what I did. And he stops, and he looks, and he looks, and I don't don't push it because you call now, you're out of the game. Now, <clears throat> instead, I waited for him to walk into the woods so he couldn't see me, and I pinched my lower lip to my upper teeth and went <laughs> and spit all over myself. Did a little snort wheeze, huh? You darn right. Five minutes gone, he's still not out. Dang it, it didn't work. But you know what? You got 90 minutes left. Good things can still happen, and you never boogered it. He never got spooked. He never thought anything was, you know, unnaturally out of place, anything like that. Now, yeah, it didn't, your calling regime didn't work, but it didn't hurt you either. And that's the biggest thing that I'm actually concerned about when I'm doing this stuff is, yeah, I want, if I can, push push it over the edge, but don't push it too hard because otherwise you're going over the wrong edge and you're never seeing this deer again. So just about the time I became convinced that, well, he's gone, but hey, he could easily circle back around. You got 90 minutes left. Out walks a two-and-a-half-year-old buck. And he's standing there by the scrape tree <clears throat> putting on a little show for me. And then he stops and he looks over his shoulder into that woods. And that's when I knew good things were going to happen. Now all of a sudden you had a live decoy. It was perfect timing. You darn right. Um, and I don't even need to do anything. All I got to do is sit here, keep my mouth shut. Because here's what, here's what I've learned the hard way more than once in hunting. When you're doing calling and rattling and that type of stuff, or you see a deer, he's coming out, oh, man, this is a done deal. Well, where'd he go? So often, they just hold up in one spot, and they don't move for 10, 15, 20 minutes. They don't have a clock like we do. No, they're not sitting there, I have to be someplace in five minutes. They don't have to be anywhere, anytime. So, time doesn't mean the same to them than it does to us. I have no doubt in my mind that that buck was standing exactly where I start wheezed at him the entire time. And he never moved. He's looking for, he's like, wait a minute, there's got to be deer over there now. I have heard a buck, I've heard a doe, I've heard a fight. There's, there's deer over there, but I can't see him. And I'm not moving until I do. And when that two-and-a-half-year-old came out, now he saw him. And sure enough, he comes out over on the other side. It was at an angle that I couldn't get. I've been, I'm self-filming this. I'm not, okay. I'm not one of these people who has any 
burning desire to be on television. As a matter of fact, if it was 100% up to me, I'd never bring a camera with me out to the stand, period, end of story. But pardon me for being a jerk, I'm sure not bringing a camera guy. Because this is is personal for me. This This is my... The way I view it, and I hope I don't offend anybody here, but I view it as a combination of going to church and therapy. When I'm out in the stand, I never feel, I mean, I'm not trying to get preachy here, but I never feel closer to God than right then and there. And at the same time, it's my therapy. It's what keeps me sane. I'm not sharing. It's very personal. It's very private to me. I'm not bringing somebody that I don't even know out there with me or even people I know. Um, I want it to be, I'm selfish. I want this to be mine. But at the same time, I'm trying to help out deer and deer hunting. They need kills on tape for their shows. Now, so, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to, I'm not going to live and die by it, if that makes any sense. You know as well as I do, and a bunch of your viewers probably don't, your listeners probably don't, but there are all sorts of people that go out hunting that if they can't get it on film, they ain't shooting it. That's not me. Absolutely. There's a lot of people like that. Uh, you know, and I've I've been on TV hunts myself where I had to pass bucks, uh, you know, because the camera guy couldn't get it. Yeah, and I'm not saying there's anything the least bit wrong with that. What I'm saying is that ain't me and it never will be. Okay. Um, I do that end of things. Just one, honestly, I do it as my way of saying thanks to those who brought me to the dance. Because I'm not there if it isn't for so many of the people that are listening to this podcast. Now, so if I can use this to help teach them, awesome bonus points. But I'm not. I'm not desperate to be on TV. Okay. What I'm desperate for is to savor these hunts. So I got I got great pre-roll of him, but he's coming through. I mean, he's coming through at five yards. I'm not going to be able to pull this off with the camera. Forget it. I'm shooting this thing. It's it's the eight that needs to die, Tracy. There you go. Yep, exactly. So I go ahead and shoot him. He runs off. <clears throat> I think I I think I may have got a little bit of footage of him running away. I'm not sure. But I'm sitting there thinking, all right, well, I don't have the shot on tape, but you can go ahead and film a couple. I I watched him drop. Or as close to watching him drop as you can get without actually seeing him drop. I watched him 70 yards out in the corn. The last last 10 yards or so, he was doing a drunk man's walk, and then he disappeared. Hmm, where do you think he is? Sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I knew darn well. I was supremely confident that he's laying there. So, you know, you might be able to use this a little bit for your social media stuff, if nothing else. So film a couple cutaways, film that, and then look down. Oh, hey, that shot was all captured on Reconix's, on Reconix's video trail camera. Cool. <laughs> so I ended up having that as well, but it was, it was nice. <laughs> Um, was able to walk right up on him, hundred and, and I'm not. I generally like to not talk score, but I'm going to mention this here just because I think this is another educational moment. It takes a tremendous eight point to break 140 inches. Mm-hmm. Talks about the eight they saw, and oh yeah, 
mid-140s all day long. Well, I'm telling you, it takes a heck of an eight-point to break 148. read a study somewhere, and I don't know how they came up with this, but it sure does seem to fit what I see. And that is 85% of eight points will never break 140. Now, um, it was 154 and 488. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, between all the history I had with him, and don't get me wrong, I'm not hunting antlers when I'm out there. I actually, what I, the older and older I get doing this stuff, the more I'm hunting management. But again, please, let me reiterate, that is not for 95% of the listeners. And you've got your most serious list, most serious hunters being your listeners. Um, yeah. It's very, very rare when actually doing anything but trying to balance your deer numbers with what your habitat can support makes any sense. That makes sense for virtually everyone. Try to balance your deer numbers for what your habitat can support. But as far as messing around with buck-to-doe ratios, as far as messing around with management bucks, Call bucks, in my opinion, is a swear word because there's not such a thing. It implies all sorts of stuff that's just pure fiction. Um, but that game doesn't apply to at least 95% of your listeners, if not more. Okay, um, this happens to be a, this happens to be a very large property where it does apply. So every single aspect of this was well. There's an old saying, Tracy, God looks out for children and fools. <laughs> I ain't a kid no more, but I'm telling you, you watch, they, somebody's watching out for me because that was a spectacular hunt, and I'll be brutally honest with you, the very next day I went out and shot a four-and-a-half-year-old eight-point with a shotgun. <laughs> and that's okay. something I have done twice in my entire life is pull off doubles, you know, back-to-back days. And, man, that was fun. <laughs> Let's, uh, you know, I, I try to keep these around an hour or less, and we got a few minutes left before we hit that. You know, we, we are in uh, January now, um, and you have managed a lot of ground. You're semi-retired, as you like to call it. But uh, let's let's go over very quickly, you know, January, February, March, what are some of the things? What's on your to-do list if you're a property owner? And, and I'll, I'll go ahead and jackrabbit through this stuff to get the information out and try to stick to our timeline here, bud. Um, right off okay. the bat, if you've got snow on the ground, you have a Ph.D.-level grad school class just waiting for you out there. Get out there, find the biggest tracks you possibly can. That doesn't guarantee that he's got all sorts of stuff on top of his head. But, generally speaking, if you find the stupidest, biggest tracks you got on the place are generally from the largest body buck you got on the place. Jump on those tracks and follow them backwards. And pay attention to everything it's doing and ask why the entire time you're doing it. The reason you're following these tracks backwards is because you do not want to accidentally, unwittingly be bumping that deer. 
And instead, rather than taking you through a grad course on how he naturally utilizes the train, instead, if that's the case, he's taking you on a grad school class on how he escapes when he feels pressure, which is valuable as well. Just you don't want to confuse the two. Um, Mm -hmm. Go ahead, pay attention to what he's browsing on. What are his food sources, at least this time of year? Where's he bedding? Now, that, all that can be figured out just how is he utilizing the topography versus the, the edges of cover. Now, all that stuff can be learned by doing nothing more than getting on that buck track and following it backwards after a fresh snow. Um, next, another big thing that I'm doing this time of year is, to me, cams are supposed to work for us, not against us. Working against us is, in my view, comparative to a mortal sin. Not really, but um, <clears throat> don't think I've gone quite that crazy, please. But <laughs> uh, but it's bad. So I try to take the same low-impact approach to can usage leading up to and during season. It just will be this time of year, though. Now I'm going ahead and I'm not yanking those cans to put them back in my scent tote for storage off-season. No, I'm moving them into those areas that I wouldn't go otherwise so I can get recon on them. Those are two big things that absolutely any and everybody can do, and I'll even do that stuff on public ground this time of year because there ain't no other idiots like me running around out there. Um, those are two very big things. From a habitat slash management standpoint, planning. I am taking everything that I experienced this year, all the photos, all that type of stuff, that's all data. That's all data for me to look over and, okay, how can I build an even better mouse trap now? What can I do to go out there and create that little half-acre kill plot over here, create that funnel over there by either running some fencing or dropping some trees to make that 50-yard wide funnel 30 yards wide, because I, co- I can cover both ends of a 30-yard wide funnel. I can't both ends of a 60-yard. You know. um, do I want to create any more of those little staging kill plots? Because I'll tell you what, that staging kill plot scenario right there is a beautiful, beautiful way to help concentrate those deer. Um, I'm beating dirt walking out there. I do a tremendous amount of study on aerial photography and topo maps, but still, when I can, that does nothing but complement boot leather, being worn by simply walking around out there. I'm going and I'm confirming that these ideas I have actually make sense, and I'm starting to work on it. Now is a really good time, especially for anybody in the Midwest and points north. If you're going to cut any trees, now is a great time to do it because you're feeding the deer as you're doing it. And this right now is the Midwestern and Northern deer's seasonal low point of food. You want to do the most good from a management aspect? Address their low points. So by doing this type of work this time of year, I'm killing a couple birds with one stone. Not only am I prepped now for when spring comes around, but I'm feeding the deer over the course of winter as well. Because 
for as much as we talk about foods, about food sources and food plots and all that stuff, even in even in Iowa, Woody Brow was a big deal. Good to know. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think about those places, and you think, oh man, they have an endless amount of corn or this or that, or the other, but they can't survive on just that. They well. Yeah, they and technically they kind of more or less can, but they don't want to. It's like what, the, the example you gave. I got all the broccoli, and I might not get this exactly right, but I got all the broccoli and cauliflower and vegetables I could possibly want in this area. But you know what? I still need protein. I still need some meat. Now, and yeah. one, of the th- one of the poor understood things about a whitetail's diet is so many of the foods that they eat, not only are they getting a little bit of nutrition out of that food, but really the main reason they're eating this is because when they eat that food, that helps them digest this food over here. And as a, uh, as a nutritionalist from Korea told me 20 years ago, and I mean, this guy had all sorts of letters after his name, um, <clears throat> Uh, he pointed to his shoe and he said, let's pretend my shoe is 80% protein. How much, what, what good does it do for a deer to eat my shoe? None, because it can't digest any of it. What they eat is nowhere near as important as what they're able to digest. And that is, I believe, well, going back to that corn and green scenario, I am I am pretty darn confident that the reason that works so well is that the greens help them break down the corn, the, the grains, better than they otherwise would be able to and get more nutrition out of that. <clears throat> Good points for sure. Woody Browse not only is more nutritious than most people give it credit for, top-end Woody Browses, um, but... They also aid in the digestion of other foods. So, even in the even in the really rich egg grounds, you know what? Woody, woody and herbaceous brows are a lot, and herbaceous just means grasses and wheat and that type of stuff. Are a lot better food sources than we ever give them credit for, and a lot more important as well. Great information. I appreciate it. That's, uh, you know, and some of these things, whether you own 20 acres or 2,000, you know, a lot of these things you're talking about can be applied to to everyone. Even, you know, I'm I'm interviewing a guy here probably this week or next who killed a couple big bucks on five or six acres. So, you know, it's, um, you just manage what you have. When here's the dirty secret that I started to share. So many people believe that habitat improvement is only for those with sprawling acres and deep pockets, A, so much of this stuff can be done with nothing more than a handsaw. I mean, a truly positive difference with nothing more than a handsaw, a weed whacker, and some chemicals. Um, you don't have to have tremendously deep pockets. And the dirtiest secret of them all is that, I'll tell you what, this stuff does so much more good for those people with that 5, 10, 20, 40, 80, 120 acres than it does. I'm managing 5,000 acres over in Iowa and Missouri. 
I couldn't mess that five. I couldn't truly mess up that five thousand acres if I made it my mission to. Unless I bring in equipment and totally, totally flower all the trees or whatever, you know, um, without doing something ridiculous, I can't mess that up. On a forty, you can mess it up so easy; it ain't even funny. It's so these types of things are so much more beneficial on real world ground than it is on the fantasy lands that I'm managing these days. Now, and everything we talked about today applies to that real world ground, except for the deer management end of things. Now, and that's why I kept trying to stress that is we get a we talk about that. The deer management end, in my opinion, too much. Because it make, by talking about it at the level we do, it makes it seem like this actually is something that, that at least most of the real-world hunters should be concerned about, when in reality, pitifully few real-world hunters have any control over this type of stuff. The best they can strive to do is to manage their habitat so and their deer numbers so that the habitat can support them. When your habitat's being decimated, you have to shoot more does. When your habitat looks like it hasn't been touched, well, you know what? You can lay off the does if you want. And that's something that is not talked about nearly enough. There are all sorts of areas in this world that a person is being their own worst enemy by shooting does because the deer numbers are way too darn low. And there's all sorts of areas in this world that the deer numbers are way too high and you really are being your own worst enemy by not shooting does. There is not a one-size-fits-all. Match the stuff to the circumstances you're in, not just because somebody, somebody who acts important is telling you to do it. Boom. Steve Bartella for president, folks. Steve Bartella for president. Well, the biggest thing I've, one of the biggest things I've learned over the years is different things work better for different people. And here's, here's a really good one. None of us know what we don't know until we know it, but wow, can it ever make us look silly until we do. And <laughs> frankly, that's, we, when it comes to this type of stuff, once we start having a little bit of success, we think that we got the game figured out. And now we're telling other people what they need to do. Very well-intentioned. We're trying to help them. But what we don't realize is that, man, it's a different world on the other side of that fence. And it is a different universe in that next state over. I have heard, I can sure. tell you how many seminar speakers I have been waiting for them to finish so I could go on stage and watch them lose the entire audience when they tell them that the entire key to not shooting mature bucks is you never enter the woods. If you want to kill a mature buck, you do nothing but set ground blinds out in the middle or along the edges of prime food sources, and that's how you're going to kill a mature buck. And he's telling this to about 250 to 300 northern Minnesota hunters who know every bit as well as those people over in Michigan where you're from that, hmm, if I sit on the edge of fields, 
my children are going to die of old age before I see a mature buck. It's different on the other side of fences. Whitetails are very adaptable. Habitat changes all over. What works best for me is not going to work best for everybody else. And what works best for somebody else is not going to necessarily work best for me. Find what works for you, and I do not care how dang many experts tell you what you're doing is wrong. If it's working for you, you keep doing it. And I don't care how many people are telling you that this is the right way to do it. If that ain't working for you, stop doing it. Find your own. Find your own solutions to this stuff. Treat nothing. Treat everything I say as nothing more than something to consider. Get your tails out there and figure this game out for yourself because only you can find the true sweet spot for what you are doing on your ground. Great advice, my friend. I, uh, I thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast today, especially after just getting back from ATA. This is a, a busy time of year for all of us in the industry. So thank you very much for being on the show. Hey, it's my absolute pleasure, Tracy. And I'm not, I know it sounds cheesy. But you know as well as I do, my friend, I'm not blowing smoke when I say I'm not even half the dance if it isn't for your listeners. They awesome. the least I can do. All I do is I try to freely, openly share the good, bad, and the ugly of the experiences they've empowered me to have. And trust me when I say I get the steal out of that trade. Yep. Well, thank you very much, sir. My pleasure, Tracy. Take care. Steve has become very popular over the years, largely because he tells it like it is. And certainly in this interview, uh, he gave his opinion and uh, provided some tips uh, that he's gained over you know decades of experience of working in the outdoor industry, managing land, and killing big bucks. So uh, it was great having him on the show. Uh, to learn more about me, visit my website, tracybreen.com, T-R-A-C-Y-B-R-E-E-N.com. I use that website to book speaking engagements for wild game dinners, as well as hold contests. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast today, uh, go to my website, shoot me an email, and just say, hey, I'd like a free pack of broadheads. And the first couple of people to do that, I'll send them a pack of Grim Reaper broadheads. Also, I'd appreciate it if you could give me a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Have a great day, and God bless.